Annenberg Media. This is the Annenberg Learner Podcast, where we aim to elevate the education profession through conversations that inspire, recognize, and encourage innovation and best practices in the field. We track the lived experience of teachers, students, and parents alongside the ecosystem that serves them. Guest speakers will share what's working and the steps we can take to reimagine and redesign teaching and learning for our most vulnerable populations. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Edinburgh Learner Podcast. With me today is Adiola Whitney, or Ola. She brings over 20 years of educational leadership, experienced CEO role of Reading Partners. Before being named CEO, Ola provided leadership around the expansion and implementation of iMentors College Success Program, serving 10,000 pairs of students and their mentors nationally. In this role, she oversaw executive leadership in the Bay Area, Baltimore, Chicago, and New York City, and partnered with over 15 nonprofit organizations nationwide to ensure the effective application of iMentor's program. And before joining iMentor, Ola served as Reading Partners Chief Regional Operations Officer, managing 14-plus executive directors across the country. Ola also served as Executive Director of Playworks for the Greater Newark Region, Ola has held program management and regional management roles at Kaplan and McGraw-Hill. Ola earned her bachelor's degree from Oberlin College, where she majored in English and African-American studies. And in her spare time, Ola enjoys spending time with family, traveling the world, and creating memories. Welcome, Ola. Thank you so much. I'm so honored and excited to be here with you. Thank you for joining us. Our learner audience will be really excited to hear about your thoughts on education uh, given the last couple of years. And I'd love to start just with what, what was your own educational experience growing up and what motivates you to do this, this work? That's such a great question. So I am first generation Nigerian. So I was born here in the States, but both of my parents were born in Nigeria. And education has always been something that's been really critically important to both of them. They're not educators. My father was a journalist and my mom worked in retail. When I was very young in an elementary school, I went to public school. It was an okay public school. And then when my family purchased a home right around the time that I was about to go to middle school, we moved into the city And I went to a public school and unfortunately the resources weren't as great as the school that I had gone to before. The school looked a lot different and felt a lot different from my elementary experience. It was in an inner city part of Columbus, Ohio. I remember having extraordinary teachers who looked a lot like me. That was not the case at all in elementary school, throughout school, both in elementary and middle school and even high school, just people who believed in me and in my potential, and I think would tell me that regularly, not just my parents. So those are some of the things that I remember. You know, my parents, anytime we were home, would, you know, buy us books and talk about the importance of reading. And so I was an avid reader as a kid. And I think that also helped my experiences in learning, even, you know, by the time I was in uh, high school and then later even in college. What sets you on the path to do this work in education specifically as an adult? Yeah, so um, there was actually an experience that I had when I was in just starting sixth grade. I went back to school shopping with my parents and I witnessed this harassment that was racially charged. Mm-hmm. And I saw my father 
basically placed himself in harm's way to support another human who he had never met. Long story short, we were coming out of the mall and um, as we were walking to our car, we could hear a woman screaming, a black woman, very visibly pregnant and was thrown to the ground by two white mall security officers. They later called the police. My father went to make sure that they would stop throwing her and being so physically harmful to her, given that she's expecting a child, but even just because she's a human and there's no reason to be so violent with someone. So he went back towards the mall and told us to go to the car and they called the police and they were filling all these racial epithets his way and her way. I think they were claiming she had stole something. She hadn't stolen anything. They let her up and also let my father go. And he immediately started taking pictures of what was going on. The next day on the front page of the only black newspaper in Columbus, Ohio, was the scene of what happened in an article written by my father. He was the city editor of um, this newspaper at the time, and they didn't know. After that, the Ohio chapter of the NAACP boycotted all of the JCPenney's in our state that year. And so how does that connect to education? How does it connect to social justice? That was clearly a move of social justice before I even knew what social justice was. Mm -hmm. And it was a move of activism before I even knew what that was, right? But my father saw this woman did not know her, but saw injustice being uh, underway and wanted to do something about it. And so he did. And I think that just taught me, like, you always speak up for people. You always pay things forward. You never know when you're going to be in a compromising situation and you want someone to advocate or speak on your behalf. That led me to doing a bunch of different volunteer opportunities and being part of various youth development nonprofits. Uh, then when I went to college, I majored in English and African-American studies and just did more volunteering. And, I, you know, it wasn't until you know, later in college that I really learned what social justice was and realized also the crossroads between social justice and education in this country. And that so much that has happened in the space of edu public education in this country has put people that look like us at jeopardy for young people, especially in economically disadvantaged communities. The resources just aren't necessarily as great as in more affluent areas. And therefore that impacts their education. More than anything, I learned a lot from my father. And I just always knew that I wanted to do something in education. And I think it was somewhat shaped by that experience and, ex and volunteer experiences that I had. I think of the work that we do at Reading Partners, and it is also at the crossroads. Yes, we are a literacy organization, but to not talk about educational inequities that exist in this country is almost like denying folks from really understanding why we exist anyway, why an organization like ours and Jumpstart and a Literacy Lab and Reading Corps and so many other great organizations, why we all need to exist. You can subscribe to the Annenberg Learner podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that and for connecting that to Reading Partners and this organization that's powered by volunteers. I assume a, a strong sense of, of social justice is why uh, volunteers are part of reading partners uh, and why reading specifically and not math or something else? You know, when we first existed, the founders at the time um, were doing some volunteer work in the, in Silicon Valley and, and specifically in some inner city schools. And they were volunteering to help read. They weren't volunteering to do math or anything else. In conversations with the principal, they saw how many students were struggling to read and they focused on reading. So from my perspective, I guess the way I'd answer that question is, in order to learn anything, 
in order to learn more about social studies, in order to focus on STEM or STEAM, which I also think are really, really important, in order to do word problems, in order to do really any type of math or any other subject, you have to know how to read. First, you know, we start in the first few years where kids are learning to read, but once about third grade comes, they're reading to learn and everything that they do and every way that they're learning in school is based on their ability to read and even the connection to social and emotional learning and their confidence, um, instilling belief in themselves and, you know, showering them with positive reinforcement, helping them believe that they could do anything. I think there's also that tie in a social and emotional learning to learning. Can't just teach a child how to read just for the sake of teach them how to read. It, it is a combination. When someone can't do something, it's a lack of skill, will, or both, right? And so that's why at Reading Partners, the social and emotional learning is so critical. Yeah, to answer your question, from my vantage point, you know, I think there are incredible math organizations out there, and I think they need to exist. Reading Partners and other literacy organizations absolutely need to, uh, to exist because in this country right now, there are millions upon millions of elementary age children who are not reading at grade level by the time that they're in third or fourth grade. And those factors and that data is used to determine so many other things, so many other outcomes for them within their public education. That's part of the reason why literacy and the pandemic has only exacerbated challenges. Like, so for students, for example, who have been struggling to read at grade level pre-pandemic are only doing, in, in many cases, are only struggling more. Mm -hmm. And students who are doing better or above grade level in something like reading are only doing better. And so the, the gap is also widening, which is just more of the reason why we, we must do something. Thank you. And uh, for our learner audience who isn't familiar with Reading Partners, can you describe uh, what is the organization? Can you talk about the model? So we are a national nonprofit. We operate in about 12 cities across the country. Uh, we've been around for about 22 years. And what we do is we empower and support young people to learn to read as young as kindergarten and up to about fourth grade. And we do that by mobilizing community volunteers. So my, the, my alma mater, Oberlin College, used to have this motto that says, do you think one person can change the world? We do. We do at Reading Partners, too. We think it's through a volunteer. It's that one-on-one -on -one connection. And so we train our volunteers uh, and coach them on how to best support young readers. And again, I'm defining that as like kindergartners through um, fourth grade. And so we partner mainly with elementary schools where the majority of the students uh, receive free and reduced lunch. And in our case, about 95% of the students we serve, as I said earlier, are black and brown students. Um, many of them, English is not their first language. Um, and so, you know, also helping and supporting them to both learn to read in English, as well as all of the other challenges that come along with that, given that many of them can read very well in their own native language. We recognized we could no longer go in school. So our program was in person. Um, it's still in person in some places now, but during the height of the pandemic, we were unable to be in person like so many other organizations and so many other folks that do work to support young people. And so we had to have a virtual offering and that's called Reading Partners Connects. And Reading Partners Connects um, is our online curriculum that essentially we took everything that we did in person in a school building and just put it 
online. And so we still do training that way, but that has allowed us to actually, you know, if a volunteer in one city and the tutors in another city, there are, there are actually districts where we're able to still support kids even virtually in that way. Got it. And um, has going virtual expanded your, the reach? Mm-hmm. I think like many organizations, nonprofits, youth development focused groups during the pandemic, our enrollment has actually decreased. Um, and so much of that is, you know, related to absenteeism in schools. And then also just schools have never gone through any of this before, right? So this pandemic, this is not what principals got their certification and, and their degrees to, to become principals on. No one learned how to run a school during a pandemic. Teachers certainly did not learn how am I going to teach a kindergartner virtually. Given their own challenges that they were dealing with in schools, sometimes our programs would start and operate later. Um, and so that was also a factor, meaning it, we wouldn't necessarily be able to start right at the beginning of the school year. We had to wait a couple of weeks or months, just given other challenges that the school was dealing with. So, mm-hmm. but as we move forward and as we climb out of this pandemic, while a lot of the ac- academic outcomes and the challenges that students face during the pandemic are going to still be with us and with our communities for years to come. We recognize that being able to be in person gives us more leverage to use either our virtual program or our in-person based on what the school wants. What we also noticed over the pandemic is that we now are at a place where there are many communities who recognize um, the challenges that many young people are facing right now with literacy and they want to do something about it. And whether that is an after-school neighborhood community-based program where they don't teach kids how to read, but maybe they do homework help. And they say, hey, we really need help with helping them learn to read, but we don't have a curriculum. Reading Partners has a curriculum. How can we partner with you? And so that is happening simultaneously as we're also trying to build back up our pre-pandemic enrollment numbers. So both are true at the same time. And while the last two years you know, perhaps serve less students than we typically would in an average year that is definitely going back up in um, a year where we'll be serving close to eight or 9,000 students at minimum. That's great. That's great to hear. And yes, I I think a lot of organizations are still in this transition period, especially when you're partnering with school districts with fluctuating uh, attendance. As part of its mission to advance excellent teaching in American schools, Annenberg Learner funds and distributes educational video programs coordinated online and print materials for the professional development of K-12 teachers. Many programs are also intended for students in the classroom and viewers at home with videos that exemplify excellent teaching. K-12 educators, students, and lifelong learners may access Annenberg Learner resources for free at learner.org. Please note, rights restrictions may limit the availability of some series. For the latest information about learner programming and availability, sign up for the Annenberg Learner Newsletter at learner.org. In terms of effectiveness, do you find in-person or virtual or some combination being more or less effective in terms of academic outcomes for the child? That's such a great question. It's still kind of early on for us. Uh, We won a grant from the U.S. Department of Ed, the Education, Innovation, and Research Grant, $8.8 million, and that is to do a five-year study, randomized control trial that uh, MDRC will be helping to lead from the research side on the effectiveness of Reading Partners Connects. 
So it's like we have this one curriculum that we've only been using for actually less than two years. And then we have our other in-person curriculum, which we've been using for 22 years. We've had a number of randomized control trials, including one done by MDRC, which shows its effectiveness. Is Reading Partners Connects, our virtual one, effective? It is. So we do mid-year and end-of-year evaluations. And in the first year of our program, so the 2020-2021 school year, Um, What we saw in the results was that kids were making a very similar progress to the type of progress they were making in our program in person. So I think the hardest piece of it is just the social and emotional learning. And it's, it's really awesome when you get to give somebody a high five, right? Or do I've given virtual high fives and it's just a little harder to do. So we've just been much more thoughtful about talking to a number of experts, like some of our program advisors who are folks in the field in higher ed that study literacy, but talking to many people, many supporters of ours on how to best support students' social and emotional learning over uh, in a virtual way. And so we've developed these social and emotional learning lessons where we still read with the student at the beginning of the lesson, but the focus is much more on self-esteem or about their, you know, about just different emotions that you experience as opposed to, okay, this is the letter A. Let's say the sound that the letter A makes. Let's put the, let's now make a small word. It's, it's much different than that. So that has been helpful. I think in-person will always be, we will always exist in person. And I think we'll also always exist virtually. I think that it's a different offering. So we have some schools that have said, we want you reading partners back in the building. You know, you'll be able to pull the kids from class during their session, but tutors will not be allowed back in the building. So we were in person, but we're still using Reading Partners Connects. And then in other places, they're like, look, students need the connection. They need the in-person connection. So as much as possible, we want to be in person. What our virtual program allows us to do, though, is in places that we may never be able to go through direct service. And that's where we set up an office. We hire an executive director. They hire an entire team of people who are responsible for program, fundraising, recruitment of volunteers, uh, recruitment of AmeriCorps members, and training of tutors and, and operations. What we've said is there are already some really great nonprofits that exist in some communities that we're not in. And so if they want to partner with us and bring our training and technical assistance and specifically our curriculum to students, we can do it that way. And I think that's how we think about exponentially serve more kids. It's not just what we do through direct service. It's how we can partner with others. So I I say all of that to say there are um, both some, some challenges to virtual, but I think there are also a lot of benefits. And that's why we're continuing to pursue it because we see it as an opportunity to reach students that we would never be able to reach before or in communities where maybe they can't afford to bring reading partners there, or there's not a big foundation or corporation there that can provide seed funding, you know, for us to be sustainable. You know, even at our height, we've reached 11,300 kids. That is a small drop in the bucket when you talk about the millions of children in this country who are struggling to read. So we're like, we're going to continue to do some of the work through direct service in the communities we're in, but we also want to partner with other people who believe in this mission and believe that young people learning to read is one of the biggest, most important um, education priorities that we have as a country. Switching gears a little bit to the volunteers, who are the volunteers and what is their experience like as a reading partner? Um, I don't know, what do you, what do you call them? Our volunteers are 
high school students who are trying to get community service hours, high school students who grew up in very similar communities to the very communities we serve, college students where we have uh, partnerships with various institutions of higher ed in their work study programs where they volunteer, but then the school may pay them as part of like a work study type of internship. We have retirees, uh, people who had kids 20 or 30 years ago, 30 or more, and have retired from whatever they were doing professionally and are looking for something to do in their spare time. We have stay-at-home moms and then corporations. So we're partnered with corporations such as Five Below who understand our mission and believe that some of their staff can be volunteering with us. So it's really a widespread. I mean, the there is a background check process for any and all of our volunteers. But what's really great is like you can be as young as a teenager to volunteer with us and as old as one can be in terms of how high it goes. It's just anyone who knows how to read, believes in our mission and really enjoys working with kids. Great. Thank you. There was big news recently with Reading Partners receiving $20 million from Mackenzie Scott. Can you talk about the impact that this funding will have and what it will be deployed for? Absolutely. First of all, I'm sure I speak for every nonprofit leader out there that like this is what executive directors, CEOs, folks running organizations wish, nonprofit organizations wish for a gift like this because it's trans it's transformational. So we're approximately a $30 million organization. So to receive a $20 million gift is just more amazing than I think I can put into words. And, you know, such a big part of our strategic plan is really thinking about how we exponentially serve more kids and how we make our technology better to be able to do that, but also how we make our in-person reading partners program better to deepen our reach in the communities that we're already in. You know, what's been really important for us is that this gift is going to be used to really further our strategic plan to be able to serve more and more students. And so if anything, what it allows is for us to accelerate so much of what we were planning to do. And and that's how we're thinking about using it. So first and foremost, to serve students. Um, The last two years, have also been really, really difficult for educators. I think I just read an article over the weekend about the toll that this time period has had on frontline folks like nurses, but also frontline folks like educators. I mean, people who are in schools working with our students and who have experienced the pandemic in such a nuanced way that only an educator can describe. And so I, I bring that up because it's, it's tied a little bit to how we're thinking about our future our program managers, our AmeriCorps members, all of our people at Reading Partners, um, our community engagement managers, all of the people who are on the front line, either as AmeriCorps volunteers or AmeriCorps members, they're the face of our program in, in the majority of our schools, or the people who manage them, program managers who support our programs across many different schools and manage our AmeriCorps members just to ensure that we're, we're delivering our program with efficacy and that our students are making progress, right? So when I think about those stakeholders, I think their experience is probably very similar to a lot of teachers. It's been tough. And so, and if we cannot serve more and more students and exponentially grow, if the very people who are on the front line doing the work to coach tutors, to recruit tutors, to support them, to run our reading centers, 
if they're not feeling great about the work or if they're worn out. Some of the investment is also going to what we can do to best invest in the people who are doing the work so that we can then support more students. We're thinking a lot about just our infrastructure operationally. You know, what do we need to do to make sure as a nonprofit, we're not putting ourselves at risk? What do we need to do to plan for the future? How are we thinking about our overall financial sustainability, but also just our operational efficacy and sustainability? Like what are the structures that we need to put in, be put, to put in place now that will ultimately ensure that we can be here for a long time if there are clearly students to serve? If we somehow fix this literacy crisis in this country in the next decade and we put ourselves out of business, that's a good thing. But if, <laughs> if that is not the case, we want, we want to be able to exist for a long time to really be able to give the nuanced support that we provide. So those are all of the things that we're considering. Now, if you were to ask like, well, like, no, tell me like the line item, like how much is going to what? I will tell you that what I have learned this year after giving this gift is it's so exciting to celebrate a $20 million gift. Mm -hmm. And it's so much harder to figure out exactly the dollar for dollar, you know, mm -hmm. how, where this money will go. And so what we did was we came up with some guiding principles and I kind of described some of them to you that are also tied to our strategic plan. So we came up with those principles and we're ensuring that the funding is helping to support that. So what we don't want to do is look back I don't know, five, 10 years from now and say, wait, we got this huge transfer transformational gift. What did it go to? Right. And then we don't have anything to show for it. So that's how we're thinking about it. You, you touched on this a little bit about supporting your frontline teams that are very much are similar to teachers. And given just your deep experience in education, both in the for-profit, nonprofit space, what are your thoughts on how we can best support and elevate the teaching profession to meet the needs of, of our students? I think coaching, training, professional development are always important. Creating opportunities for anyone, whether they're an educator or not, but to continue to learn and grow in their work is really critical. To allow for inclusivity in what is happening and how decisions are made, especially about the students that teachers and educators and program managers and AmeriCorps members that are at the front line of serving is really important and serving and educating. And then I would say in addition to that, like how people are compensated, what are the benefits that they receive? That's important. And just what's their quality of life and their experience like working? I've heard about the teacher shortage in different communities across this country. And oftentimes, who suffers most in addition to the students are the other ed educators. And I think we've seen that same thing just around AmeriCorps recruitment. That has been even harder than we've seen in previous years. And if there are less AmeriCorps members, that means the people who are on the ground are now doing more. So like, what are we doing to ensure that the staffing structure of a school or of a nonprofit is done in a way that is sustainable? The Wallace Annenberg Gen Space is an innovative center for older adults to pursue creativity, connection, and lifelong learning. For more information, visit genspace.la. At Learner, we're trying to think about how do we get young adults excited about teaching? How do we increase the pipeline? How do we get more teachers of color in the classroom serving those students? Any thoughts there on how do we just get kids excited? Yeah, you know, I I think a couple things are true. I think um, it's exposure. You know, let's say, you know, the goal is to get more black and brown men 
to become teachers. And so the goal is to get more minority men. They have to see other minority men as teachers, right? Otherwise, they're never going to think that they can be teachers. You're right. It is exposure. It's what you see. And then I think it's your experience having great teachers. Um, I think that that's really important. And understanding just what's at stake in our country right now and the importance of education and the importance of our teachers, the more that we can create opportunities for young people to experience tutoring or volunteering or working with young people or helping them understand the educational inequity gap that currently exists in this country. I think the more that we inform and educate, I think that helps organizations and institutions that are focused on recruiting more teachers of color um, and that they're given some type of incentive. I hear sometimes people talk about their struggle with recruiting folks from diverse backgrounds. And I say, well, if you're only, if you keep going to the same place and you're getting, you're expecting a different result, do something different. Where, how are you marketing to this community? How are you connecting to people who are already really tied into the community? How are you using faith-based institutions or clubs in Greek life? How are you utilizing all of that to recruit? I think those are just some of the things that I think about. And what is your vision for public education? I think my vision is probably similar to that, which is my vision for reading partners. Like, I just believe we cannot go at this alone. And I think far too often national nonprofits that are somewhat established come into communities as if they are changing the face of the community and doing the work to the community or for the community, not with the community. So I think same thing with the public education system. We have to do this work with our community. So things like family engagement is really important. Understanding the community and being able to actually recruit some leaders, instructional leaders, teachers, other volunteers who are from the community. I think that that's really important. And I mean, what I would say is my vision is that we once and for all are able to close this gap. What is centered in public education are students and that our tax dollars ultimately help kids reach their full potential and that everyone who's in the school building believes that that people go into this work with an asset-based way of thinking, that we're not thinking about what our young people do not have, but rather all that they have, right? We're not thinking about like simply how hard the pandemic was. It was, but my goodness, how much resilience have these children learned, right? During this pandemic, like, yep. So you're actually not going to see anybody in person. You're not going to do play dates. You're not going to play any sports. You're not going to go to after school activities. You're going to just learn in front of this machine. Nope. You actually won't be able to give your teacher a hug or a high five. You won't be able to see your friends. But we expect you to learn how to read and do math and be on time. That is tough. Just I'm just using that as an example of, of thinking about things from an asset-based way. But I just think recognizing their brilliance and their potential and banding together with other nonprofits, teachers, school districts, community leaders who believe in a child's potential, who believe that a child's outcomes in life should not be based on the community they grew up in, on their families' um, educational attainment. Like it shouldn't be based on any of that. It shouldn't be based on how much money their parents make or lack thereof. It should be based on them. It should be based on what they want to be on their potential. And so my vision is that more schools and communities band together for that realization and that that's what public education ultimately becomes. And that educators are paid well to do the work and that they are supported and they have the balance that they need to do the work 
and that there's a lot of self-care that, you know, self-care is promoted, especially, you know, when, when things are difficult. So that's some of what I would say. I just think teachers and educators are some of our biggest assets. And I just want us to treat them as such. I think there's still a lot for us to do as a country and just communities. Best Buy is committed to building brighter futures for teens through tech. With an extensive network of Best Buy teen tech centers, teens are provided safe after-school spaces where they can get hands-on experience with the latest technology in areas like programming, filmmaking, music production, and design. Best Buy has set a goal to support 100 teen tech center locations by 2025, expanding the program's reach to 30,000 teens each year. To find a Best Buy teen tech center near you, visit corporate.bestbuy.com slash social dash impact slash teen dash tech dash centers. What are you reading, watching, or listening to these days? Yeah, so I'm looking over at my bookshelf right now. I have a ton of books, but I like to swap out the books on my bookshelf for the things that I'm reading. So I'm going to share with you. I am reading Killers of the Flower Moon, which is about tribal nations. That's by David Grand. I am reading The Measure of Our Lives. It's Toni Morrison's work, but it's a compilation of a lot of her work, like kind of all put together. Not, and it's beautiful. And then I am also reading Professional Troublemaker by uh, Lovey Ajayi Jones. So I'm reading a lot of different things. And then in terms of what I'm watching, you know what? I'm not watching a lot of television right now, which is kind of unlike me, but I'm not. It's really, really difficult to watch the news given just all that is happening right now in the world. So I I choose to kind of read that instead of watch it on television. Got it. Thank you. Is there anything else that you would like to share with the learner audience? The last two years have been hard on everybody for a, for a variety of different reasons, right? And we just talked a little bit about that experience for educators and for young people, but also for parents and caretakers of children. It's been hard. All kind of been indoctrinated into becoming educators at home when some of us did not would not have chosen that as a profession. But I would say I'm speaking to people who have kids, people who do not have children, but people who care about our country and about its future and about making sure that we can instill in young people that anything is possible, that they can be whatever they want to be, and who believe that every child should have an opportunity to dream and to be whatever they want to be and to reach their full potential that there are organizations such as Reading Partners where you can volunteer. And you know what, if, if tutoring is not your thing, I'm sure there are other organizations. But the plug that I would have put in here is that if you just have an hour of your time, you have an hour once a week, and you're interested in volunteering, we are in communities across this country um, and now have some opportunities to even be virtual for folks who are not in one of the 12 regions that we serve. So just that, I mean, I think my plug is like volunteer. There are communities who need you. You can give an hour of your day or hour of your week. Reading Partners is an option, but there are also so many other great options too. Thank you so much, Ola. I appreciate your time today. Uh, Folks that are listening, please check out Reading Partners for an hour of your time a week. You can change a student's trajectory and really support them at this time. The Annenberg Learner Podcast joins the catalog of multimedia professional learning content to support educators teaching in more effective ways. Annenberg Learner is the education division of the Annenberg Foundation. Learner supports the foundation's mission to encourage the development of more effective ways to share ideas and knowledge. Go to learner.org and annenberg.org to learn more.